0: You can turn in your Bible or in your app to uh, Isaiah 42. Somehow, some way, we're going to get through two chapters of Isaiah, all 58 verses, and do communion. <laughs> so buckle up. There is a seatbelt in your seat. Just kidding, there's not, there's not one there. Don't stop looking. Um, we are going to cover two chapters here in Isaiah and talk about the glorious God who is and his delightful servant. Well, normally, I would have a stand and read, but I'm not going to today because chapters 42 and 43 would take about eight and a half to nine minutes to read, and I want that time to myself for preaching. So uh, we're going to start with prayer and just dive right in, okay? So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this new year. Thank you for the year that was. Father, no doubt there were ups and downs, uh, various magnitudes for those here in this room, Lord, and those who aren't able to make it this morning. So we pray. God, that you would help us to continue our worship as we sang, and now as we listen to your word, help us to be attentive. Uh, No doubt, some of us are a little bit tired from staying up last night, so we pray that you would give us um, attentiveness to your word this morning, that we would recognize you as the Holy One, that we would recognize your Son, um, our servant Jesus, Lord, and that your Spirit now would um, illuminate your word for us so that we might understand Um, and appropriate this for our own lives. God, give us insight into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in uh, our series on Isaiah, Hope Crushes uh, Darkness, and we have been here for quite a while, and we've got a few months left in this series, uh, but we've taken two weeks off. So three weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 41, and um, it's really important for us to remember, or if you're a guest, uh, that once we got through chapter 39 of Isaiah, you might want to just flip back if, if you can in your Bible there. Uh, 30, chapters 36 through 39 were narrative. Um, the rest of the book of Isaiah is almost entirely poetry and prophecy. but we had this uh, historical narrative, right? Smack dab in the middle, and in chapter 40, kind of uh, made a pivot and made a move towards the second half of the book of Isaiah, in which the, the message is, is similar, um, but a different audience. And so just to remind you, Uh, that much of chapters 1 through 39, uh, especially 1 through 35, dealt with judgment um, on the sins of Israel and um, of what they had failed to do as God's covenant people. And so chapter 39 ended with King Hezekiah showing the Babylonian envoys all of his riches and all of the temple and the palace. Um, And Isaiah said that someday, soon after Hezekiah, it would be more 150-ish years, but um, that the Babylonians would come and take what was in that temple, that they would destroy it. And so the second half of Isaiah now is Isaiah preaching as if to a future uh, congregation, a future hearers. Those who in the future would not be in the land of Israel, they would be deported and exiled to various lands of the kingdom of Babylon. And so that is how we are to take this. In fact, the first word of chapter 40 was, remember? Comfort. 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 And so now Isaiah majors on the comfort theme. There is still definitely judgment to be dispersed and to be described. But hope, um, comfort is to be given to God's people. And today we have a new um, focus of that comfort. Something that we're going to be seeing over the next several dozen uh, chapters here. Uh, through about chapter 55 or 59, depending on how you count it. But we're going to see the servant. The servant. And we ran into this servant in chapter 41, but chapter 42 is really going to open up for us this theme and idea of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. And if you're not familiar with that word Yahweh, when you look in your Bible and you see LORD in all caps, uh, that is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the covenant name, the personal name of God. When you see Lord, just normally spelled out, it's Adonai or Master, sort of what we're, we're used to thinking of as, you know, my Lord. Um, and so when we see Yahweh, we're seeing God's personal name, God showing himself to his people by the name that he has revealed himself to them with. So let's dive right in. Uh, point number one in your notes, if you're taking notes, is Yahweh's chosen servant will succeed in his mission. Yahweh's chosen servant will succeed in his mission. And why this is important is because there has not been any success by the other servant of God. See, in chapter 41, you might even want to turn back to chapter 41. It might just be a page away. But 41, verse 8. Chapter 41, verse 8. We covered this three weeks ago. Yahweh is speaking. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Uh... This is in reference to the nation, the people of God, the children of God, the chosen people of God, and they collectively were the servant of God, and they have failed. And we're going to see even more of that today. The servant of God has failed, but this servant, and we'll see how it's a different servant, introduced here in chapter 42, will succeed in his mission. This is really important. This is what is known uh, often as the servant songs. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, I actually didn't do the research to find out how they got that name because they actually, we have no record of them ever being sung. But they're called songs because maybe it's poetry and some people didn't know how to handle poetry and prose and so they just called it a song because they like poetry. The servant songs, there are at least four of them, are going to span the next several chapters and uh, talk about this servant. They'll return to that theme, servant. There'll be judgment, there'll be talk of other things and then circling back to my servant or the servant of Yahweh. And so we're going to continue to see that Here And it's really uh, helpful for us just to note um, that the servant, the word servant, um, has a a range of meanings in the Old Testament. A range of meanings um, that went from uh, outright slavery and ownership to more of an indentured servitude type of thing. But just just as a a side note, um, this is often a charge brought against Christianity by skeptics and atheists um, that the Bible doesn't really do away with with slavery, or actually approves of slavery, is that the slavery of the Old Testament was a much different slavery than the chattel slavery here in America with Africans. Um, and that's, we can't help but think of that, right? Um, as, as North Americans, as Americans, as Europeans, um, p- people from anywhere uh, in the North American continent and from Europe, um, the slavery of Africans um, was a horrific thing, and it was much different ...than the slavery or the servanthood of what we're talking about in the Old Testament. If you have any more questions about that, we have some resources in the library... ...and you can come talk to me afterwards. So th- this, this notion of servant first does have this understanding of service, right? <laughs> the servant serves. But more than that, um, oftentimes when it's Yahweh speaking... ...servant is actually like an honorific. It's a title of honor. It's, it's a title of someone who has attained a certain status... ...which is kind of contradictory... Um, But if you think about those who were called the servants of the Lord, the prophets, um, at least nine times in the Old Testament are called the servants, or the servant of the Lord. Moses is especially called the servant of the Lord. When Joshua succeeds Moses, he is called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And then there's another man who goes by the term name servant, and that's David. King David. He's not a servant, he's a king. But you see how when um, given from Yahweh as a title or as a name, it becomes a title of honor to be the servant of the Lord. And this is a big deal. And so this would have gone through the minds of um, the Jewish people because when it's my servant or the servant of Yahweh, it is generally speaking to someone who is a leader, someone who has been honored. So we see here, look at verse 1, chapter 42. Behold. This is going to take forever. We only got through one word. But behold. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) this this is really important. Go back just one verse before. The last verse of chapter 41, what's the first word? Go back to 24, verse 24 of the last chapter. What's the first word? Behold. Behold, we don't generally use, I I don't know if you use that term in the last week, other than if you're reading the the Christmas story in the last week, but generally most of us in our usage of vocabulary don't say behold. I mean, maybe you did. Maybe you're a salesman. Behold, my wares. I am not Is that what you do, Terry? Is that how it works? Okay, Chris, was that part of the training to say, "Behold"? Okay, yeah, I, we don't use that word very often. Um, and, and really, what would be more helpful for us in the way that we use the the English language would be like, "Hey, look or see." It, it's 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 getting attention. And so, um, in verse twenty-four, chapter forty-one, it was talking to the idols. Behold, look, see, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. And then in chapter in chapter in verse twenty-nine, uh, see, look. They're all a delusion. Okay? The people that worship these idols okay, are nothing, empty wind. And so the very next word in chapter 42, remember the chapters and verses are, uh, were placed in long after this was written. Behold, look, my servant. So the, the two previous, see, look, behold, were to idols and idol worshipers who are described as nothing or less than nothing. Now, in contrast, Look. My servant. See, the focus, the spotlight shifts. And now the servant is in the spotlight. And this servant is one whom Yahweh upholds, who who makes sure he won't fall. Uh, this servant is chosen, picked out, elected. Okay? Okay? Chosen, picked, specially for this job. What about this servant? This servant is the one in whom Yahweh's soul delights. Now, um... God does not have a body; um, He is spirit, and so this is not saying that um, some some difference of God's soul and God's body or something. It's saying His heart, His soul, His being, with all His being, He delights in His servant. This is um, this is a, a statement of love that that someone delights in. I delight in this servant. This sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter three. When Jesus descends into the waters with his cousin, John the Baptist, he's put under the water, he's brought back up, and a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased, whom I am delighted in. And, and I, I say that right up front, because let's just be honest, um, Christian tradition for 2,000 years has said, this is Jesus, this is going to apply to Jesus, Of course, we're not told that here in the Old Testament, but we see very clearly um, as we read and as we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament that this is a description of Jesus Christ. And we know that, especially from the next phrase, I have put my spirit upon him. I have put my spirit upon him. So the spirit of God rests on him. This looks a whole lot like Isaiah chapter 11. Um, If you have time, go back and look at Isaiah 11. We covered this months ago. Um, is that this, this this David, this new David, this Davidic Messiah, this Savior, this um, one like David would be the one in whom, uh, upon whom, God's Spirit would rest. And so this servant looks an awful lot like that Davidic Messiah. And so it would be, uh, it would make sense for us to put the two pictures together, the descriptions together. So here is the servant. Uh, Yahweh's upholding him. He's chosen him. He delights in him. He's putting his spirit upon him. And what will the servant do? He will bring forth justice to the nations. Uh, that same word is often translated Gentiles, the non-Jews. This is a universal vision. This is a God not just of a little tribe, a clan of people in a corner of the world. This is the God of the nations. And so his servant will bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles, not just the children of Israel. You know, it's very interesting here that the servant is described with pronouns like he and him. This is singular. This is actually a person. And so that means that there's debate about this, but that means in my mind that this cannot be Israel, the the nation, the collective nation of Israel. So I think what's happening here is that God is putting forth His servant who will succeed, the successful servant, as opposed to his failed servant, Israel. And we'll see that more as we go through the rest of the chapter. And at this rate, we're never going to make it. So we've got to keep moving. The characteristics of this servant are, are different than, than most saviors, most messiahs. Um, you, you have to remember that Israel, even at its height under King Solomon, was still a tiny nation, surrounded by superpowers, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and Greece uh, and, and the the nation states of Greece off to the west, Israel was small. Israel was often invaded um, isaiah 's talking to Israel in another land in the future after they 've been exiled, their temple 's been destroyed, and they have been taken away from their land. They have no hope, and so what they need or what they think they need right is a military leader, someone who will raise up the the fallen and destroy. The conquerors, but this servant. Look at verse two. He won't cry aloud. He won't lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And the picture there is of a, a flimsy, a flimsy reed, maybe taken from um, by next to the river or in a pond. And this reed that could be used for for lots of things um, back then, but it's it's broken. It's kind of it's kind of bruised. It's leaning a little bit. Um, and rather than get rid of it, rather than discard it. This servant will not break it. And a faintly burning wick, remember how they had light? They didn't have, they didn't turn on, a, they didn't flick the switch when they went into a room. They had to light an oil lamp. So if you were here for the living nativity, we had a bunch of oil lamps um, all around that had these little wicks sticking out and there's oil inside and that's how it stays lit, right? And so this is one of those ones that just, <laughs> like a few weeks ago, right? It won't light. <laughs> it's not staying lit. It's, just, it's not providing any light, so why keep it up? Put it out. Well, this servant won't do that. He won't, he won't quench the faintly burning wick. And so the picture here is of a gentle savior, of a gentle servant, someone who um, is, is, is gentle and quiet and meek and compassionate for people. Right? This, is, this is not saying that the servant will walk around town and, and find low-burning candles and say, Oh, don't put that out or go around and find reeds in people's house. Don't throw that away. Keep it. The, the picture is of people. People who are hurt, who are bruised, who have no hope. This servant will not, put, will not quench that faintly burning wick. This servant will come to bring forth justice. That's what this servant is going to do. And oftentimes we see throughout Isaiah that Yahweh brings justice. And so in this picture, Yahweh is going to bring justice, but specifically through his servant. And we think of justice... Um, I think that things that come into our mind are um, court, uh, justice of the peace, um, or of a movie where there's this desire for revenge, but instead of taking revenge, there will be justice. Um, And that's kind of what we think, legalese. Um, This is kind of like when Pastor Ron talked about the word shalom, peace, in the Old Testament. It is not just limited. It has such a wide range of usages. And so um, what, what it means is when the servant is going to faithfully bring forth justice, he's going to bring forth right order. Good, ethical, upstanding, correct order. And so it, it's not just um, dispensing verdicts, guilty, not guilty, although it would include that. What, what it pictures actually is, is something that, that expands from just court to religion, society, politics, ethics. What this servant will bring is a, a, a well-rounded sense of justice. Now look at verse 4, this is interesting. He will not grow faint. So so he's he's gentle and compassionate, but he's also robust. Um, He's not a weakling. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. And if you have the ESV, you have a little note there that says that's the same word as bruised. So he he keeps the bruised reed from breaking, but he cannot be bruised. So he's gentle with this bruised reed, but when attacked, he is not easily bruised. Till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. See those universal pictures the earth, the coastlands, the faraway places, not just not just Israel, certainly Israel, but not just Israel. This servant seems to be a worldwide servant. And so in verses one through four Yahweh has spoken of his servant and now in verses 5 through nine Yahweh speaks to his servant. Thus says God Yahweh who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth? And what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk in it. That's quite a preface. Who is this God? Who is this Yahweh? He's the one who's made the earth. He's made everything. Last night for fun I looked up a a Greek gods and goddesses website. And I just started reading through some of the descriptions of the... How many of you are into mythology? That kind of fascinates you. Uh, Yeah, I started reading some of the the, the myths of some of these gods and goddesses. And a lot of them are just local, right? Right? They were worshiped in Ephesus, or they were worshiped um, mainly in the southern part of Greece, or they came to be associated with a shrine or a, an oracle here. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about God, the God who made everything. It's not a bunch of little gods. Where you do the forest, and I'll do the, the rivers, and you get the sea, and I'll get the heavens. This is the God who did it all by himself. This is who he is. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This sounds a whole lot like Exodus 20 where God is on the mountain. There's thunderings and lightnings and loud noises and the people of Israel are down at the bottom of Mount Sinai and they're scared and Yahweh comes out of the clouds and says, I am Yahweh. I rescued you out of Egypt. This sounds a lot like it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. And now he's talking to Um, you, singular. This is to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you or guard you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, is that universal language. To do what? Verse 7. Open the eyes that are blind. Bring out prisoners. Verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. This is God who does. This is not a God who proposes. This is not um, a God who looks for a vote. This is the God who who acts, who does. He is the one who will do this through his servant. He brings his servant along to accomplish his will. Verse 8 continues and goes on. This is a fantastic, this is one of the best verses in Isaiah. (laughs) I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. This God doesn't share his glory. He doesn't share His glory. He is to be praised. He is to be recognized as the one and only God. He does not give His glory to others, nor His praise to carved idols because they're nothing. We've already learned that in chapter 41. These idols, these other gods, they're nothing. I am Yahweh. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And the, the implication here is the former things that I told you about. The former things that I predicted, that I told you to my prophets, they, they're happening. But look they 're coming about i 'm true, and new things I now declare not only that now i 'm saying new stuff, and before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the God who uses prophecy as a verification for who he is um, the The test for a God throughout the the old Testament is communication. Yeah. well, you say your God told you to do this, so let's 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 all c- come around guys okay, okay, go ahead, have your God tell us okay, you you think kind of of the, 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 biggest, uh, the biggest exhibition of this is Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, and Elijah on his own against 450 other prophets and they're jumping around on an altar trying to get um, their god Baal to, to, come, to show up and Elijah's like, maybe he's on vacation or shout louder, he can't hear you, maybe he's going to the bathroom. I mean, so Elijah's just mocking their gods and then they they nothing happens. And then... All Elijah has to do is show up and pray a humble prayer and God, pff, fire out of heaven, right? And this is the God who showed up. He's the God who's there. He's the God who communicates. This is the God who not only communicates, but communicates about what is to happen. What is going to happen. And here we get a prophecy. There's a servant coming. This is, who, this is how he's going to act. This is how he's going to um, go about his ministry. You can write it down. When he shows up, this is how he'll act. This is how he will be. Uh, The book of Matthew, you can go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, and Matthew quotes this passage as a fulfillment of prophecy in the ministry of Jesus. And it's right after an entire day of Jesus just healing people all day long. Opening blind eyes, light where darkness was. Healing cripples, healing lepers, taking diseases and casting them off. Healing these people. This is the servant of Yahweh, and it is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is who, this is who this servant will be. And so, a kind of spoiler alert: <laughs> we're going to go through a bunch more servant songs, um, but it's Jesus every time. And it's interesting to know how Jesus fulfills this. Jesus, the gentle, Jesus, the one who 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 serves the poor and the weak and the needy. Those who have no hope are given hope by Jesus. See, and that helps us to understand servanthood because um, you can see over here on our wall, our fourth uh, core value is ministry. Another way to say that is, is service. Um, in our ministry to each other, in our service here, and our service to each other um, throughout the week, and our service to others, we are to be like this servant. See, Jesus is the servant that defines our service. Throughout the New Testament, um, we are called the servants of God. Paul describes himself constantly as a servant of Jesus Christ. We are the servants of God. So how are we to act? What are we to do? Who are we to look to to be servants? Should we look to Moses? Um, Should we look to Elijah? Who is the one we should look to for our example of servanthood? One of the commentators said this um, about the servant. This servant was forecast by Isaiah, exemplified perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and is to be reproduced in all who would serve the Lord with true service. And so that the description here becomes a prescription for us to follow. That we follow Jesus in his fulfillment of the servant songs, the servant prophecies. And so we looked at Jesus for how he served. How did Jesus serve? Well, we could look at many different ways, but the ultimate way is he died. He gave up his life for those that he loved. He denied himself like he calls us to do. He obeys the Father like he calls us to do. And he lays down his life like he calls us to do. This is where we look. This is where we look for service. It is amazing to see how Jesus has served us. And so we want to serve... From seeing his example, but we want to serve, knowing that initially he served us, and that we couldn't save ourselves. We just sang this: "You alone can rescue, you alone can save." And so that's what we, we find our strength to serve out of is that he loved us. He loved us in his service, and so we can serve. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So now we are ready to serve knowing that we've been served, knowing who has served us, we can humble ourselves, count others as more significant than ourselves, look to the interests of others, and do what the master tells us to do. We can follow in the footsteps of the servant and be servants ourselves. Point number two. Uh, Quickly, in these next four verses, uh, the world will sing to Yahweh. The world will sing to Yahweh. This is one of many places in the Old Testament where it says this phrase, Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. So it said throughout the Psalms, um, it said in a few places. Interestingly, it's said also twice in the book of Revelation that we sing a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. The call is, the command is, sing to Yahweh. From where? Where are we supposed to sing? Everywhere. From the ends of the earth. You realize this what happened Today that the people that have already celebrated their Lord's Day and the other time zones of the earth, on islands, on coasts, um, in caves, in forests, in old ancient buildings, in warehouses, under a tree, they have sung to the Lord from the farthest ends of the earth. Uh, The the picture here in verses 10-13 through is of all these different areas praising God. And the two that are named, it's very interesting, in verse 11... That Kadar and Selah sing for joy. And those places are the enemies of Israel. Those places are located in Edom, the descendants of Esau. Even the enemies of God are singing to him. Let them give glory to Yahweh, verse 12, and declare his praise in the coastlands. And then I love this. It's the first three verses are how they are to sing and how they are to, to worship God. And then in verse 13, God responds to their worship. And watch how he responds. Yahweh goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Um, There's this participation factor here. In worshiping God, we participate in his um, mighty acts, in his acts of war. Notice it's very interesting. The servant, the gentle, compassionate servant, serves this man of war. Uh, God is described here as a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He's getting ready to fight. And we know from Isaiah that he fights on behalf of his people. This is something to get excited about. And this is something that will happen. It happens um, intermittently, right? Today there were probably um, huge geographical regions in which nobody knows the name of Jesus and no one worshiped Jesus. And there are other places like right now here in Orange County where there are hundreds of churches gathered to declare... Our God is real and we worship Him. And so this is something to be considered that it happens intermittently, but one day it will happen for real. When the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters fill the sea. Verses 14 through 17, point number three, Yahweh will do what Israel cannot do. Yahweh will do what Israel cannot do. And so in in this section we have seven I will statements where God just says, I will. I will. I will, I will, I will do this. And the picture is of Yahweh having restrained himself, having held back. There's also a a change in metaphor to this pregnant woman who is waiting for this new life to come. Waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and boom! (laughs) There is new life. And so the, the picture is of this God who now lays waste mountain and hills, verse 15, turns rivers into islands, verse 16, leading the blind, guiding the blind, the end of verse 16, turning darkness before them into light. These are the things I do. I love that. This is what I do. This is what I do. I am Yahweh. I do not forsake them. And then he mentions again, as we'll see the theme throughout the the 40s in Isaiah, uh, is that Yahweh is doing this in part to put shame on the idols and the gods of the other people who are not really gods and who cannot do anything. Look at verse 17. They are turned back. And utterly put to shame. Who? Those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Just a reminder, I'm Yahweh. You shall have no graven images, right? You don't need to, you don't need to, uh, to make this little piece of wood or metal to look like me and bow down to it. Um, I, I'm, I'm not contained in a little idol. I am Yahweh. I made the heavens. I stretched them out. I created you. Worship me how I tell you to. (laughs) This is the reminder that we don't get to worship God willy-nilly the way we want to, whenever we want to, however we want to. We worship God in the way that He has told us to. We come before God and worship Him in the way that He has prescribed for us because He is God and we are not. And, And Israel has not been able to have any success. And so Yahweh steps in and says, I'll do it. I will do this. You have failed but I will be true to my covenant and I will lift you up and rescue you. Point number four, as we finish off chapter 42, the consequences of willful blindness and deafness. Your blank there is willful. The consequences of willful blindness and deafness. It seems that Isaiah now picks up um, his own words. This is not Yahweh speaking. This is Isaiah. And he says, hear you deaf and look you blind (laughs) that you may see. Did you get that? Hear you deaf, right? This, 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 is, um, this can't work. It can't happen. Unless, as we'll see, that their blindness and their deafness are self-imposed. They're willful, right? Nah, 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 I don't want to hear you. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> I can't hear you. Well, actually you can, but you're yelling and putting your fingers in your ears. <laughs> this is willful. Who is blind but my servant? Verse 19. What? or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of Yahweh. I thought, we, what? What's happening here? And this is where we need to see the dual uses of the word servant. And Isaiah is showing us the failed servant, Israel, and the successful servant who is to come. Here is this this servant, Israel, who's blind and deaf. Watch what he does. Verse 20, he sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Right? Do you remember when you when you were a kid and you wanted to get out of something? And your mom told you to do something. What? Huh? Oh, I I didn't hear you. That's, that's that's the excuse, right? That's kind of what what's what's being described here. What? Huh? Lord, what? Oh, how did you expect us to do this? I didn't hear you. Well, you know, as as parents, many of you. Um, you kind of see past that, you kind of see through that, right? It's not too hard to spot, especially in the littlest ones. <laughs> you heard me. <laughs> you heard me. Do what I told you to do. The Lord was pleased, verse 21, for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. Like God did all he could to give them a good law, to help them follow him. But verse 22, this is a people plundered and looted. They're all of them, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. This picture is of this destroyed people um, who, who, because of their lack of listening and seeing, have been destroyed. Verse 24 is identified. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? I think this describes who this servant is. This later description of Jacob and Israel goes back to the servant who's blind and deaf, willfully blind and willfully deaf. Who, who gave up Jacob and Israel? Verse 24. Was it not Yahweh? And now Isaiah says, against whom we have sinned. See, Isaiah includes himself in the people. He's not this prophet that goes, You terrible people, don't you follow God like me? He says, We've sinned against God. This, this is what we get for doing it. But when they watch this, he separates himself now in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he includes himself in the sin of the, the people, but he excludes himself from saying, Guys, come on, follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. Stop turning away. Yes, we've sinned, but we need to turn and follow God. Now listen, they had his law, verse 24. They just wouldn't obey it. It was there. So what did he do? He poured on him, the servant, Jacob, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The punishment that was given out to Israel um, was not understood. Israel was so deaf and so blind that they couldn't even understand what was happening. And so that's why uh, you read through uh, 1 and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and, and they said, well, God, why are you turning against us? Well, let's go try and worship these other gods, not understanding that what God was doing to them was exactly what He said He would do if they didn't obey. There's this huge portion in Deuteronomy of a blessing and curses. If you obey God, here are all the, all the blessings that are going to occur. If you disobey God, here are all the curses. And there are a lot more curses than there are blessings. Right? As a way to motivate them. Don't do this. And then when it happened, the people of Israel said, what's going on? Why isn't God blessing us or provide? where Aren't we as people? Well, yeah, but you're reaping the consequences of not obeying, of not listening, of willfully blinding yourself and deafening yourself. They had God's word. They had his law. God magnified his law. He made it big for them to see. One of the commentators said this, the cardinal sin of the people of God is to possess the divine word, to possess it and ignore it. That that God has actually revealed himself. They have God's law and they've ignored it. I I know you said that, Lord, but I'd rather do this. What arrogance. And that is why God poured out his anger Upon his people. Let's move to chapter 43. First word. But. But. This all happened. Fire. Judgment. But. Point number five. The great lengths God will go to for his beloved. The great lengths God will go to for his beloved. And now we see this beautiful passage. You may have this on a coffee cup. Um, you may have you may have memorized this to get you through hard times. But this beautiful passage uh passage here, talks about how far God will go. But now, that happened, but now, thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, we return to this, like we did in chapter 41, fear not, don't be afraid. Why? For I have redeemed you. Past tense. Redeemed is, uh, you might see something on the bottom of your coupon, if you read the little, the fine print, redemption value. When you redeem, you're, you're buying something. Okay, what God is saying is, "I, I bought you, I, I, you're mine. I bought you back. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine." Okay, this, this is this is close to, if not, marriage language. Um, I've called you by name. I named you. You're mine. Look at this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You don't have to go it alone. And again, this is the this is the the antidote to fear. God with us, Emmanuel. Why, do you, why should you not fear? Well, there's plenty of reasons to fear, right? I don't have a job. I can't pay the bills. I can't cover the rent. I can't, there's a lot of reasons in our whole world to fear. But God says, don't fear. Why? Because I'm with you. And if we understand who God is, if God's with us, then who can be against us, right? That's the logic of that phrase in the Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, right? That's the, the unspoken answer there. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name; you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Uh, There's been uh, attempts to try to figure out if this is like meant to be the the trip back from Babylon to Israel, like God's like promising that he can cross the river and they can get through. There's fires; they can walk through them. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is poetic, metaphoric language. That when the trials of life, when the waters are too high, when... And by the way, the reason a metaphor works is because in reality, it, it it works too, right? Like if there's fire, it's not a good, safe place. right? You need to be rescued. If the water's coming up above, you need to be rescued. And so that, that image works as a metaphor because we know exactly what would happen in real life. I say this to the guys that get baptized in class. This is actually baptism. God gave us a really clear picture of what's going on here, right? Uh, buried, new life. What hap- I, I tell them, what happens if I just hold you under? It's kind of like a joke, but I mean, like, they die, right? I mean, like, really die. That's why the metaphor works. The metaphor works because it, in reality, it works. Okay, so the metaphor here of the fire, of the flame, of of the raging waters, of God saving them from them, is because that's how we describe our feelings, right? When you have a broken heart, you don't, right? You're not saying my left ventricle hurts, <laughs> right? My aorta's having a. Re- now, what he's saying is. My soul, my, me, I hurt, I ache. Okay? And the reason that works is because we know what it means to, to ache, <laughs> to hurt. So we use this language to describe us in this in this extreme language. Verse three For I am Yahweh, your God. This is who I am. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Your Savior. Look at this. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. What is he talking about? <laughs> Uh, well, but what I think he's talking about is, is Egypt, all of Egypt. Cush is the south end of Egypt. So he's not talking about just upper Egypt where the Nile meets the Mediterranean. He's talking about all of Egypt, way down south. All of Egypt. I'll trade them. <laughs> like, I value you so much, you're worth more than all of Egypt. Superpower. Big country. You need a tiny Israel. Right, I'll trade. I'll make that trade. I'll go ahead. We'll do that. Because why? Verse 4. Why would he do that? He really needs Israel. God's like, man, I really need some allies. I really need this disobedient, tiny little nation. Verse 4, why does he do it? Because they're precious. You're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. (laughs) I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You are worth this (laughs) because I love you, so I'll do whatever it takes. Verse 5, again, fear not. Why? I'm with you. Again, I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west. I will gather you. you. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. All points of the compass are mentioned because God is going to bring his people back to safety, together, under his rule and his reign. And now we're into this prophecy. When did this happen? Has it occurred? Has it been fulfilled? Yes, no, no. Both, right? There's all this. There's all these ways where we can see that, yes, God has done this. But there's also ways we can say, this has not happened yet. <laughs> Fully. Partial fulfillment. Right? Um, Jesus has come once, but why does he have to come again? Well, because he partially fulfilled the prophecies, and he's going to come back and complete, completely fulfill the prophecy. So when we look at prophecy, see, when did this happen? Well... It happened, kind of, when God brought his people back. And it's going to happen when God brings all his people back to the new heavens and the new earth. So there's this, there's this, this sense where this prophecy certainly has been fulfilled, but it has not yet been completely fulfilled. Look at it as he goes on in verse 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why? Did God create his people for his glory? He made them, he shaped them, he formed them for his own glory. And because of that, he will not allow his glory okay, to be dispersed okay, and to not be collected. He's going to collect his people all together and bring them together. And we see in the New Testament that no longer is God solely focused Um, on the people of Israel. But all of us are included. The Gentiles, the nations, are brought in. Praise the Lord, right? How many of you are Jewish? Praise the Lord for the the Gentiles are brought in. Some of you are like, trying. I don't know, maybe I'm like an eighth. or. (laughs) Um, We are the Gentiles. Why should we be included in any of this? Because God in his grace has reached out beyond to us. Point number six, verses eight through 15. God defends his godness. God defends his godness so his people will believe. Again, we return to this this picture of a courtroom. It's a courtroom scene, right? And um, we'll see that here. But the people that have already been mentioned are, are called into the courtroom. Who are they? The blind that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. The children of Israel. God's people who are disobedient. Bring them into the courtroom. Okay, here we go. Now we need to figure out, is Yahweh the only God? Is he the true God. He's on trial. All the nations gather together, the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses, call on your witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. And so the sides here are are kind of unclear. It's definitely Yahweh on one side, and it it might be the gods, the other nations on the other side. But verse 10, Yahweh calls in his witnesses. Right? Because you can't just say, I didn't do it. Right? That doesn't, I don't know if you've been on a jury. That doesn't work, right? <laughs> I didn't do it. Prove it. I just didn't. Okay. <laughs> All right. Right. <laughs> Bring in the witnesses. Who are the witnesses? You are my witnesses and my servant. There it is again. Whom I have chosen. This is not the servant in 42. This is the servant Israel. Okay? My servant whom I, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. By the way, the reason we know that is because you are my witnesses is y'all. <laughs> it's plural in the Hebrew. Y'all are my witnesses. Back in chapter 42, it was um, him, he, you, singular. Okay, Here now it, 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 it applies to the whole nation. Understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. Yahweh is making the claim to be the only God, okay, to be uh, the only one in charge, and in fact, what's very interesting about this, if we had more time, we could dive into it. But if you want to look later this afternoon, go look at John chapter 8, and specifically verses 24 and 28. Because Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees and the people that are challenging him, Jewish people, right, um, about his identity, twice he says, you need to know that I am he. And you're like, whoa, hey, that sounds familiar. It sounds like Isaiah. Go back and look, and Jesus is claiming to be God. Um, so some people say, well, Jesus never said he was God. All right. <laughs> okay, well, um, you don't have to say something explicitly to still say that thing, right? And we can think of um, a, a ton of examples here of, of how we could say this. Um, but, but essentially, what Jesus is doing is saying, if you're not willing to believe on the evidence, then I'm not just going to come out and give you another reason to reject me. And so he says, you need to know that I am he. And this is before in verse 58 where he says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? Um, which is a slightly different thing going on there. But but what's happening is that Jesus is identifying with Yahweh. Jesus is identifying with the Old Testament God, right, of the Jews. right? He's saying, I am Yahweh. I'm he. And here, Yahweh says, I am he. Um, there's no other savior I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. What does that mean? Like, not just God in the past, but going forward, like, I'm still, this is still my role, like, I didn't get replaced. Henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? See, guys, this is the God who does what He wills and is not stopped by humans or by fake gods that don't exist, right? This is the God who does what he wills. Verse 14, he's described himself, as, they keep piling on these, these, these titles of God. Okay, so the Names of God series that we did uh, back in 2015, um, and the Attributes of God series that we did in 2012 and 2013, if you go back and listen to those on the website, a lot of this stuff is covered. But um, piled up names, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel. Okay, for your sake I send to Babylon, and bring them all down as fugitives. He's going to go and bring his people back. Verse 15, I am Yahweh, your holy one, creator of Israel, your king. Piles up all these terms, all these names to say who he is. And so he defends his godness. I'm God, I can prove it, I'll show you, you're my witnesses, and I am God. I am he. All right, the last section here. Uh, Verses 16 to 28, we'll just have to fly. Point number seven, God hates fake worship. And His forgiveness is great. God hates fake worship. Which is good, because we're about to participate in the Lord's Supper here, and this is just a good warning. Don't do it if you don't know what you're doing, and you don't know this God. This is not just a, you know, just a, ha ah, cracker. I mean, like, really, like, they're not, they don't taste great, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> This is not like, woo, I can't wait to have that flavorful. No, what we're doing here is we're doing something very, very uh, reverent in remembering what Jesus has done for us. So don't, don't fake it. Right, don't, don't fake worship God. He hates fake worship and His forgiveness is great. Let me just summarize here. Verse 16, Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea. What's that remind you of? The Exodus, right? The parting of the Red Sea. Makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Okay, talking about how um, He rescued them from the Egyptians and say, Remember that? Remember how I saved you? And then this really weird verse eighteen. Well, don't remember the former things? Didn't you just tell us to remember the party in the Red Sea? Yes. But verse nineteen. Behold, I am doing a new thing. So it's kind of like this picture. Like you know what I can do. But I'm God and I'm creative. And I'm gonna do something new this time. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna delight in something different and something new. I'll make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Like that's also impossible, right? I will bring the, the wild beasts will on me, jackals and ostriches. I'll give water in the wilderness to give drink to my chosen people. Verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself, they might declare my praise. And then the indictment, 22 to 24 is the indictment. Yet you didn't call upon me. And this is where Yahweh says, yeah, you came and you did the sacrifices and you, and you did all that stuff, but it's like you didn't. It's as if you didn't do it. Um, You've burdened and wearied me with your sins and your iniquities. This fake worship. Yeah, we'll sacrifice the lamb, yeah, but we're not going to follow you. Oh, I'll, I'll come on Sunday morning and I'll sing the songs and I'll say, good job, pastor, but I'm not going to live like it. Right? And so this, this is not hard to apply. It's easy to fake worship. Anybody fake worshiped before? <laughs> me, I have. <laughs> yes, this is what God is getting to the heart of. I want your heart. I don't want your actions only. Because if actions flow out of a false heart, the actions themselves don't mean anything. Right? You know this. This is how this works in families. I love you. Totally gossiped about you. Right? I mean, this, this doesn't work in families where you don't show any kind of love and then say it, right? I love you. Oh, yeah? Well, that, that's not how the first part of the day looked. Right this is the this is fake worship. God hates it. They weren't abandoning their worship or the sacrifices. They were actually showing up. They came to church. They 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 went. It's not like they stopped going. They just stopped worshipping and kept going. This is wrong. One of the commentators said it's much religious fervor but no religious reality. So so we're going to partake right now in the Lord's Supper. And we we don't want just mere religious fervor. We want real, real worship. So two things. Um, just really, really quick. Um, just think of, of coming on Sunday morning. Why are you here? What's your motivation? Varied, right? None of us have perfect motivations, right? <laughs> but why are you here? What are you here for? What are you here to do? We come by faith to listen to God, to sing to him, to pray to him, to encourage one another. You know, listen, God's not a genie. We're not going to rub this. Thing. God is not okay, God, well, I'll, I'll do communion if you give me a job this week. That's not how this works. This works um, in the way that we remember what Christ has done on the cross. The servant, how he served us. How he served us by dying in our place, rising from the dead. Um, Notice that in verse 24, the sin is called weighty. So right now, this should be a weighty thing. Like, this should be reverence. This should be awe. This should be uh, confession, right? Humility. But it should also be celebration, too, right? Because what we're celebrating is not the fact that we're awesome. We're celebrating the fact that we're not awesome, and God is. And so now we get to share in Him saving us. So we're not like, oh, cracker juice, yeah, I'm good, I'm a good person today. What we're saying is, I'm a bad person today. <laughs> and the good person, the only good person, his body was broken, his blood was shed for me. So, so, this is what we need to do. We need to honestly come before God and participate, as the Bible says, participate in the table, participate in the elements as they're handed to us. Father, thank you for sending the servant who does not um, just throw away, bruised reeds. He's gentle and kind. He helps us in our weaknesses because he has experienced our weakness. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, your example of service to us. Help us to go from here and be servants uh, like you. And we can't do that without your power. So we thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to be your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.